Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed, and this is Ideas. It's tempting to despair over human history and recoil at its endless carnage, hatred, and divisions. But this episode embodies the idea that humanity can triumph, even in the most brutal of circumstances. This episode is called Enemies and Angels. It's about catastrophic loss and absolutely breathtaking redemption. It begins with this man, former Iranian soldier Zahid Haftlah. When the war started, I was a boy, about 12 years old. All I knew about Iraq was what I studied in school. I only knew that Iraq was next door to Iran. I never thought I'd ever be involved in a war with Iraq. The Iran-Iraq war began in 1980 and ended eight years later. It was the longest conventional war of the 20th century, claiming at least a million casualties. Najah Haboud was nearly one of them. He's originally from Basra, in southern Iraq. I didn't know much about Iran. I knew it was a neighboring country and that they were people next door to us. We enjoyed their music. They enjoyed ours. They were just like us. In the spring of 2014, Paul Kennedy spoke with Najah and Zahid. The basic facts are this. Najah, despite his easygoing attitude towards Iran, was conscripted into the Iraqi army. And Zahid was a teenage runaway from an abusive home. I was 13 and a half when I joined the army. That's very young. Was it common for the army to take people as young as you? Yes. Zahid wasn't alone. Thousands of Iranian boys were sent to the front. And just two weeks after he enlisted, Zahid was also sent to the front as a medic to a city called Khoramshar, where Iraqi forces had committed atrocities. When the Iraqi army invaded Khoramshar, they killed all the men. And they raped and sexually assaulted all the women. Then they changed the name of the city to Al-Muhammara. Iranians were deeply offended by this and despised it. Iranian forces planned an all-out, take-no-prisoners assault to recapture Khoramshar and destroy the Iraqi army in the process. Najah was with an Iraqi tank unit, which had recently been deployed to the city. It was 1982, and the Battle of Khoramshar was about to start. We got word from headquarters that Iranian troops were moving in and that there'd be action soon. But it was quiet. There were no bullets, no nothing for about a day. 
The only thing we heard were loudspeakers blaring patriotic military music and Saddam Hussein's speeches. Then after two days of quiet, suddenly, at night, all hell broke loose. When it started, the Iranian army was advancing. We didn't know. We'd never experienced anything like it. Then we noticed the whole area smelled like gunpowder. There was blood and death everywhere. Our ranks fell apart. We were broken. Broken on the inside. I thought that war was like what you saw in the movies, cowboy movies. You know, two groups of people standing in front of each other, arguing and fighting a little. But when I went to the front, I saw just how tragic it really is. You can't even begin to imagine it. We were ordered to retreat because the Iranian troops were closing in on us. And the tanks around me, some of them got hit and just stopped. And others caught on fire and burned out. And just as we were retreating, the tank I was in got hit. He was hit by a shell? The tank got hit, not us. But when we got out of the tank and started running, bombs were going off everywhere, and we got hit by shrapnel. I was wounded in my head, my back, my legs. So we went inside a bunker to hide. Inside that bunker, wounded soldiers from both sides lay dead or dying. Outside, Iranian soldiers were executing captured Iraqis. Zahid witnessed the killings firsthand. Hundreds of times. Thousands of times. I saw people being killed right in front of my eyes countless times. I even had a nightmare about it last night. As for dead Iraqi soldiers, I had to try and find out their first and last names and pass them up the chain of command so they could then be relayed to the United Nations. We also had to bury the corpses. So, you know, we dug mass graves. They were huge. We had to use these front-end loaders and bulldozers to push all the corpses into these mass graves. The shooting was coming from both sides, from Iraqi and Iranian troops. They were both shooting at the bunker. You were afraid to take a step anywhere with all the explosions. It felt like it was raining bullets. Nijad, did you feel you were going to die? Yes, 100% yes. I resigned myself to dying in that bunker, right there and then, because I was getting so weak. I prayed a million times. I just prayed and prayed and prayed. One of my duties was to inspect all the bunkers one by one. While I was checking them, I went inside one where I saw several corpses lying deep in blood, and I just thought all of them had been killed. 
But when I was leaving the bunker, I heard something, like a really faint voice, like a whisper. So I turned back to have a look. And as I turned on my flashlight, I saw someone's brains scattered all over the ground. Somebody else had been totally ripped apart by machine gun fire. It was horrible. It was a bloodbath inside that bunker. When I saw a flashlight, I felt two things, fear, and then I felt hope. I didn't know if the light meant friend or foe, but I did feel hope. What did you hear? It was like moaning. I was scared, but as I went further inside the bunker, I looked at the corpses on the ground. I tried to push them out of the way to see where this voice was coming from. And then, finally, I found someone under the corpses, someone who was still alive. And he was moaning? Yes, he was moaning. What did it sound like? Like he was calling his mother in Arabic, calling to God. He was pleading. He was in so much pain. He was covered in blood. His face, his arms, his stomach, his chest. He was a total mess. I shone my flashlight into his face, and he looked at me. He was speaking in Arabic. I was speaking in Farsi. I couldn't understand him, and he couldn't understand me. So I used hand signals, and I asked him to be quiet, not to make any noise. I was trying to hush him up. But it was impossible to quiet him down because he was in so much pain. And at first I was scared because I was thinking, what am I doing here with all this ammunition and all these guns around him in this bunker? But then I just pushed the ammunition and the guns aside. All I could feel was someone pulling at me. That's all I could feel. I had no idea if he was Iraqi or Iranian, from our side or theirs. When he reached for your pocket, What did you think he was doing? I thought he was stealing from me because stealing was rampant. I thought if he sees that I'm alive, he'll kill me. So I played dead and let him take whatever he wanted. I tied his shoelaces and I ripped open his shirt. Then, with a lot of difficulty, he raised his hand and he put his hand inside his shirt pocket And then he showed me a photo. It was a picture of a beautiful woman and child. He had a beautiful family. This guy had such a beautiful family. It was a picture of my girlfriend, my fiancé, and my son. What did that photo mean to you? It's hard to explain what it meant to me, but it was my life, my family, the love and the hope to live my life for. Anyone seeing that photo would have been moved by it. Najah himself was handsome, and this beautiful woman was next to him, and their child was in the middle of the picture right between them. When I saw that picture, I was touched, and I made a promise to myself that no matter what, 
I would not let this person be killed. There were people killing Iraqis, and, and that you, you were part of an army that was there to actually fight these people. When did you decide not to fight him, but to save his life? Anyone in my shoes with even a shred of humanity would have made the same decision I did. How old were you? Thirteen and a half. You were a boy, really. You know, he was in really bad shape, and at one point, I actually decided to take him back to Iraq. I was going to lift him up and put him on my shoulders and walk a few hundred meters back to Iraq and leave him there. But with the condition this guy was in, that was impossible. He wouldn't have survived. So then I thought I'd get an ambulance and load him in and then drive him just over the border into Iraqi territory and leave him there. But that was also impossible because it was the front and soldiers were everywhere. Zahid dressed Najah's wounds as best he could and set up a makeshift IV. He gave him all the painkillers he had, but they weren't enough, so he left the bunker to get more. And it was then that he told some other Iranian soldiers what he'd done. They warned him that he'd face execution if he got caught. But Zahid returned to the bunker and found Najah in even worse shape. He was bouncing around like an injured cat. It was actually hard for me to get him to sit still so I could give him a morphine injection. But after I managed to get some morphine into him, he got relaxed and calmed down in just a few minutes. So then I took him by his feet and I pulled him to the end of the bunker. And I put corpses on top of each other to make a kind of a wall to hide him and make sure he couldn't be seen from the outside. He stopped all my pain in that moment, just through the hope I felt coming from his hand. I knew then he wasn't the enemy. I knew he was an angel. The pain just disappeared. Suddenly he'd become your angel. Yes, I'd say that he suddenly became my angel. He talked to me, but I didn't understand him because he was speaking another language. The only thing I could do was make an expression on my face to him to show how happy I was to see him there. What did his face look like? He smiled at me and comforted me and signaled not to worry and that everything would be okay. Now, you spent several days in the bunker. Do you remember anything about that time? Over the next couple of days, I had lots of dreams. What were the dreams about? Dreams that I'm flying, that I'm with my child, my son, that I'm sitting down and everybody's eating. Dreams that I'm walking on water. Dreams about things I knew were impossible. Do you remember leaving the bunker? Yes, Yes, I do. I heard voices outside. A clearing group was going bunker to bunker. They were checking to see if any enemy soldiers were still alive, so they could kill them. I'd actually found a corpse in our bunker. It had about five to seven bullets in the head. That's what I was expecting to happen. Then one of the guys from the clearing squad came into our bunker. 
He started swearing at me, cursing my mother and just swearing a blue streak at me. And he said, you're an Iraqi spy, aren't you? He wanted to open fire, so I quickly grabbed a grenade. And I pulled out the pin, and I got ready to release it. And I told him, if you want to kill this guy, you'll have to kill me too. I'll detonate this grenade, and then you and everyone else in this bunker will get blown sky high. Then it got physical. We had an altercation. I tried to headbutt him in the nose, but he was taller than I was, so my head hit him on the chest. And as he started to fall down from the impact, his gun went off. Luckily, the bullet didn't strike Najah, but it landed close by. And he said he wanted to report me to the commander. You were willing to kill an Iranian soldier in order to save an Iraqi soldier? Yes. And you were willing to kill yourself at the same time? Why? If you don't keep your word, you disgrace your family name. You have no honor. I'd promised myself to do this, and I committed myself to it, and I was ready to give my life for it. So you were standing up against an Iranian soldier who had a gun, and you were putting yourself between him and the Shah. How did that standoff end up? This Iranian soldier saw that I was even more nuts than he was and how determined I was. And then, as he stepped out of the bunker to report me to the commander, I threw up my hands and I prayed to God. I said, Lord, I was trying to do something in good faith. I was trying to save somebody's life. Please help me. And as I was praying and pleading to God, the soldier who was going to report me stepped out of the bunker. And then there was this big explosion and somebody screamed. So I ran out of the bunker to find out what was going on. And there were about one or two hundred incoming Iraqi artillery rounds. And then I saw that this guy had just been killed. He had all these shrapnel wounds in his body and his neck, and in his head, his chest. He was totally destroyed. Did you feel like your prayer had been answered? I mean, this, this is almost miraculous. Yes. I bent down, and I put my ear to his mouth to hear what he was saying. But he couldn't really talk. Maybe he was trying to swear at me again or threaten me or tell me something else. But in a couple of seconds, he was gone. Now, you still had to get Najah out of the bunker. There were bodies everywhere. How did you, how did you do that? Najah had to stay in the bunker for a few days. I'd visit him every four or five hours, and I'd change his bandages and dressings. I'd give him painkillers twice a day. How could you do that? There was a war going on, and you were specifically forbidden to try to help any Iraqi soldiers. I was still performing my regular duties at the same time I was tending to Najah. The clearing squad didn't return to our bunker because there were so many other bunkers and so many dead bodies. And they thought they'd already cleared ours, so they just passed on by. So after a few days, how did you get him out? 
I went to my commanding officer and I asked him what I should do if I ever came across any wounded Iraqis. And right when I was talking to him, there were these Iraqi POWs 100 meters off to the side of us, about 50 or 60 prisoners all sitting down. And they had these white handkerchiefs and they were waving them on top of their heads and chanting slogans like, Death to Saddam. And Viva Khomeini. They were showing how they didn't support Saddam Hussein anymore and obviously trying to save their lives. After I finished speaking, my CEO kind of lost it and went crazy. He shouted, these guys are the enemies of Iran. They're the enemies of Iraq. Kill them, kill them. And he picked up his gun and he shot at the POWs. Then everyone else followed suit too and started shooting at them. He got so angry, he grabbed me by the ears and lifted me up and then slammed me to the ground. And he said, what are you doing? This isn't a classroom. This is a war and we have to root them all out. They're the enemy. Well, the next day, I went to my CO again, and I asked again what I should do if I find any wounded Iraqis. And he gave me shit and said, I already told you in plain Farsi, don't you get it? And I said, we can't kill everyone. And we shouldn't, actually. That's what I told him. Then during all of this, the battalion commander happened by and stopped and asked us, what are you arguing about? And I told him, we can't kill all these people and we shouldn't kill all these people. So he got in touch with Central Command and he came back to us and said, I just talked to Central Command and they told me that if everything's quiet on the ground, then don't kill anybody. Gather up all the wounded Iraqis and POWs, but don't kill them. How did you then actually get him out of the bunker? After a few days, the corpses had become pretty badly swollen. They were actually so big, I had to hack them apart with a shovel or something just to clear my way to him. I ended up walking him out of the bunker. A buddy and I placed him on a stretcher. And while we were exiting the bunker, we ran into another Iranian soldier who was actually from the city of Khoramshar. His sister and mother had been sexually assaulted. Other members of his family had been killed by Iraqi soldiers. And he was crazy. He was a young soldier, really young. He came over to me with his rifle and with the butt of his rifle hit me right here on the jaw and broke my teeth. Broke your teeth? Yeah, he broke all my teeth. I was screaming at him. Don't hit him. Don't hit him. But it was useless. So I grabbed the guy and I pushed him into the canal. And he started shooting from the canal. But either he ran out of bullets or maybe his gun jammed up. But the shooting stopped. So I left him and I went back to Najah. Najah was totally exhausted. His eyes were wide open and he was just stunned looking at me. It was really disturbing, and I felt so sorry for him. 
So I shouted to my buddies. Okay, guys, come on, let's get him to the hospital. So we got to the hospital, which was just a collection of tents. It was a field hospital. And the doctor there, his family had also been sexually assaulted and raped in Khorramshahr by the Iraqi army. And he turned to me and said, you son of a bitch. Why'd you bring this piece of garbage here? Meaning Najah. So I left the hospital tent and I sat down and I cried. And again, I prayed to God. I said, Lord, if this man's fate is to die here in this kind of misery, I can't do anything more for him. O my Creator, Thou art great, and I beseech Thee to help. Then I told myself to get back inside and plead with the doctor to help stop Najah from dying. And as I was going back inside the tent, I saw that Najah had fallen off the stretcher and onto the ground. He was convulsing and shaking and looked almost dead. So when the doctor came over to tell me off again, he saw Najah lying there. And then he began to have a change of heart. And he said, okay, guys, pick him up and bring the stretcher inside. He took a lot of stitches on his stomach, his hands, his jaws. His teeth were broken, so they had to be fixed, and they had to pull some of them out by the roots. His whole face was covered in bandages. How close do you think he was to death? Najah was clinically dead at one point. I think God kept him alive for a reason. How long was it before you saw him again? Three days after his operations, I went to his bedside. And then when I saw the smile on his face, I was filled with this sense of relief and happiness. What was it like when you saw Zahed again? I saw the most beautiful human being in front of me. Did you still think he was a guardian angel? Yes. Could you communicate with him? You couldn't talk to him? I didn't have the language to speak with him, and my mouth, I couldn't speak anyhow because my teeth were broken. Soon as I smiled, blood would seep out, so I had to keep my mouth closed at first. So if you couldn't talk, what did you do? Just smile at one another? Just with our eyes. We expressed ourselves with our eyes. While I was there, the doctor was talking to Najah in pretty bad Arabic and told him, guess what, this is the guy who saved your life. And in Arabic culture, it's a sign of great respect and gratitude when you kiss the back of someone's hand. It's the ultimate gesture of respect. I'd never even kissed my father's hand before, but it was the only thing I could do right then. It's the most precious gesture I could ever offer to anyone. So he was trying to kiss the back of my hand and was repeating a few sentences in Arabic. May God bless you, may God save you, may God bless you. But I actually pulled my hand back and instead I kissed his face and he started crying. And I started to cry too. So I stood by his bed for a while, trying to get him some help, get him some water or whatever, 
And he was saying all the time in Arabic, thank you, thank you very much, God bless you, thank you. A few hours later, there were a couple of buses and a chopper they were going to use to evacuate the wounded POWs. That was the last time I ever saw Najah. I'm telling you, my eyes became my camera, and I took a mental picture of him right then and there, through my eyes. It was overwhelming. I can't describe the feeling. But I had to say goodbye to him because I was in the hospital and he had to go. The doctor insisted that patients be left alone and he had to leave. Did you think you'd ever see him again? I never thought I'd return to Iraq or ever see him again. You're listening to Enemies and Angels on Ideas. Recorded at CBC Vancouver with Paul Kennedy in the spring of 2014. Ideas is heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. What if someone you love asks you to help them die? What would you say? This is the powerful question at the heart of the ultimate choice. The series follows the journey of Michael and his wife Anne as they grapple with his request to choose the way he wants to die. I'm Rob Cribb, and through their story, I learned a lot about my own family. I hope the show is a way to start conversations many of us want to have, but rarely do. The Ultimate Choice is out now. Najah had reason to fear he'd never return to Iraq. He was sent to a prison camp, where he'd remain for the next 17 years. Can you describe the place? What was the prison like? I don't want to get into the politics of it. I don't want to go there. But I will say this. It was unearthly, like we weren't on this planet anymore. I'm not looking for a political explanation, but just physically, what did the place look like? Hunger. Cold. Dirt. Awful. Soulless. It killed your sense of yourself. How many prisoners were there? Thousands. I know this is not easy. None of this is easy. Um, But I also know that they did torture prisoners. Were you tortured? Of course we were. Can I ask you how they tortured you? They'd beat us, whip us with a belt. But the most painful thing was when they'd put you in a room, a cold room, with no toilet, no heat, no bed. they do this all the time, with all of us. You mentioned that there was starvation. What did they feed you? What did they give you to drink? After we finished working, they'd bring us the scraps from their meals. We had to eat whatever was left over. They turned us into animals, from humans into animals. It's it's unbelievable to me to imagine how you can live through that torturous imprisonment for 17 years. Did anyone try to get out? Were there attempts to escape? Some tried to run away, but they'd catch them and chop off one of their feet. Did anyone try to get out by committing suicide? 
Lots, especially the highly educated ones, because Saddam took all the university students, all the doctors and engineers, all of them, and he threw them into the war. They were mostly the ones who committed suicide. Naja, how did you survive that? Love. My mother's love, I guess. Angel, follow me. And my guardian angel, who was looking over me. <coughs> Once again, the guardian angel. Yeah. After 17 years, Najah was finally released in a prisoner exchange. He made his way back to his home city of Basra in southern Iraq and started looking for his family. I figured I had about a one in a million chance that I'd find my partner and my child. One in a million. Did you still try to find them? Yes, I, I never gave up. When I got back to Iraq, the only thing I did was try to find them. Someone would tell me, oh, they're both dead, and others told me they ran away. But I had nothing concrete to confirm whether they were dead or alive. How long did that search go on? Until the guardian angel told me, enough, no more. There was no life for me in Iraq anymore. I had nobody there anymore. So a taxi driver I knew said, I'll get a passport for you, take you across the border. So you were leaving Iraq. What, what was that like, though, to say goodbye to people who were close to you? Any family that was there, any friends? Was it sad? My friends were all dead by the time I got back to Iraq, all of them. My one brother, my father, my sisters, and my other brother, they'd all left the country, so I didn't have anything in Iraq anymore. Najah eventually made his way to Canada and joined extended family in Vancouver. In the meantime, the war continued to drag on for Zahid. He got wounded, and while in the hospital, he fell in love with his nurse, and they got engaged to be married. But just before the wedding, an Iraqi bombardment hit the neighborhood of his bride-to-be, and both she and her family were killed. What happened changed me, transformed me into something evil, a devil. As soon as I recovered, I went back to the front, but not as a medic this time. I became the commander of a machine gun squad. Then came August 1988. Zahid was stationed near the Iranian border city of Sumar. It was 10 minutes after midnight when disaster struck. Iraqi forces and Mujahideen were invading Iranian territory again. The whole area of Sumar was so covered with tanks and tank traps and corpses and artillery shells, it was physically impossible to put anything on the ground. It was all covered with war material. It was so messed up you didn't know if when you reached the side of this hill or the top of that hill, whether you were going to come face to face with the Iraqi army or Mujahideen. How close was this to the end of the war? One hour. One hour till the end of the war, when the next ceasefire was expected to start. And it was then that I got shot. I got shot in my left shin. I bent over to dress the wound and get some painkillers from my backpack. I didn't have a weapon on me. And then I saw a group approaching me. 
couldn't tell if they were Iraqi or Iranian or Mujahideen. They just came over and told me to stay still and don't move. So I put up my hands. And then they shot me once more. The bullet grazed my right cheek and hit my earlobe. And while I had my hands up, one guy came forward and started swearing at me in Arabic. Then he started beating me up and asking me, are you besiege militia or are you in the army? I was writhing from all the pain, and I happened to be wearing an overcoat. I didn't know whether it belonged to the militia or the army, because everyone was wearing everyone else's uniforms, everything was so mixed up. I had no idea my overcoat actually belonged to the army. And then the commander of the group, the guy who had hit me, turned to his men and said, okay, don't kill this guy, he's in the army. But there were some people right next to me who were in the militia, or Basiji, as Iranians would say, and they were shot immediately because they were in the militia. And you were taken prisoner then because you were a soldier, not militia? It was a total fluke that this overcoat, which I didn't even know I was wearing, saved my life. They thought I was a soldier because of it, but actually I was in the militia. That overcoat saved my life. So they took you prisoner instead of shooting you? That's right. And they took you to a prison camp? They kept us in the area of Sumar, where we were arrested for three days. The temperature in Sumar reaches 50 degrees in the daytime and drops to minus 20 at night, so it gets really cold at night. The Iraqi soldiers had herded us together like cattle, and then they threw a kind of tarp over us. So it was only our own body heat that kept us alive. These were the conditions we had to live in. It's, it sounds like the conditions were hellish. Was there also torture? Yes. How long were you a prisoner of war? Two years, four months, 17 days, eight hours, and 23 minutes. You remember that number as though you're still living it. I was living these numbers. Every moment then seemed like a year to me. Did your family know you were alive at that time? Nobody knew what had happened to me. The fourth day after we got caught, an Iraqi military vehicle came over to collect all the injured Iraqis and Iranian POWs. So what I did before they, you know, came and got us was I took off the military overcoat I had on and I'd thrown it on the ground next to a corpse whose body parts were lying all around it. There was a small Quran in one of the pockets with my name in it. And then, when an Iranian search party came looking for dead Iranians, they found my jacket, opened it up and found the Quran with my name in it. And since it was near that dismembered body, they thought I was dead. Zahid's family was notified that he'd been killed. But a little over two years later, in 1990, Zahid was released, and he returned to Iran, to family and friends who had no idea that he was still alive. And he had no idea that they'd actually made a gravesite for him. Yes, I went there and I dug up my own grave. <laughs> what happened when you did that? There was just part of an arm in the grave. I don't know who it belonged to, but these kinds of mistakes happen in war. What's it like to visit your own grave? My brain was frozen. I screamed. And then I sat down. 
there was a picture of me put up on top of my gravestone. I kicked the picture frame and broke it. And then I sat down and, and I fell apart. But after five or ten minutes, I suddenly snapped out of it and said, Are you stupid? You're still alive. Why are you crying? Get out of here. Right then, the cemetery security guards saw me break the glass frame of the photo. And they came up to me and said, why are you doing this? And I said, look, this picture is me. And then they looked at the photograph, and then they looked at me. And then they got so scared, they actually ran away, yelling, what are we doing here? We're actually digging graves for people who are still living. They were pretty shaken up by all this. The war left Zahid shattered and volatile. Over the years... He had trouble keeping down a job. He became a kind of professional thug, strong-arming tenants behind on their rent. Eventually, he got a job as a merchant marine, something that suited his turbulent spirit. It's said that people living on board a ship have a closer relationship with God. It's a shorter distance for them than for people living on land. So in the evenings when I was sitting there on board the ship, I'd pray. And because of all the experiences and the pain I'd suffered and everything that I'd seen, I came to believe that all of us are equal in the dark. We are all equal. Zahed may have found a measure of peace. But it was soon disrupted by the religious officer on board, who demanded absolute conformity to strict codes of behavior, both on and off the ship, pushing Zahid closer and closer to his breaking point. So I went to a merchant seamen's club where I was having a beer, a can of beer. And the religious officer from our ship came in. He'd actually followed me inside the club. And then with the back of his hand, he hit the bottom of the can I was drinking. And the can sliced into my nose and lips and blood started gushing out. And I said to him, you know what? Life is tough enough on board with you on my back all the time. So I come in here for a break to have a beer. And then you show up and start giving me a hard time. So tell me, when do I get a break and get you off my back? And he was going to curse me out, but I jumped on him and I beat him up. I actually beat him up, this man who was an agent of the Islamic Republic. After a while, I calmed down, and then we both eventually went back to the ship. And because the vessel is considered part of Iranian soil, the religious officers started giving me a hard time again. So you, you had actually beaten him up? Yes, I did. And did you do violence when you were back on the ship? I had no intention of beating him up again, and I tried putting up with him, haranguing me. But he got louder and louder and cursed at me, shouting and screaming, what kind of a Muslim are you drinking beer? So I turned on him and I attacked him again. How badly? Pretty badly. Then I kicked Ayatollah Khomeini's portrait and I broke the picture frame. And I threw everything on the dining table, all the dishes and the dinnerware, and smashed them onto the floor. Did anyone try to restrain you? No, no, they didn't. Because they knew that I was capable of doing a lot worse than that if I felt like it. I could have actually set the whole ship on fire. Zahid now had a choice to make. Either stay on the ship and face the prospect of being imprisoned again and getting tortured, only this time back in Iran, or jump ship, which, as it turns out, was about to dock in Vancouver. 
I actually gathered up all my belongings I had on board, and I said to the watchman, these are mine, I'm going to jump ship. But I couldn't jump from the downtown side. So when the ship was approaching the North Vancouver Esplanade, that's when I jumped ship, and I swam to shore here in North Vancouver. The watchman had thrown my belongings overboard on the downtown side, so I had to go get them before swimming to shore. So you watched the ship sail away? I was feeling very sad. You know, when the ship was getting farther and farther away, I just kept gazing at it, saying, Goodbye, Iran. Goodbye, Mother. Goodbye, Motherland. I said goodbye to everything. How did you survive? How did you live? The first two weeks were really tough, and I had a lot of difficulty. So I'd go to grocery stores and go through their trash bins to find something to eat. So I had to get a grip on things. And I told myself, when you were a prisoner in Iraq, they beat you up every day. They tortured you in that POW camp. But here at least, no one's going to torture you. Look around. It's beautiful here. The sunset in Vancouver is so beautiful. And I was trying to convince myself that I was okay. But everything was not okay. Zahed was halfway across the world from everything and everyone he'd ever known. He was no longer living on the street, but he had no money, no way of communicating, and he'd become severely depressed. Uh, I had crying fits, seven to eleven times a day. I was out of my mind. And I told myself, you've made a huge mistake coming to Canada. Why did I fight with that religious officer? Why did I do something like that? I should go back to Iran and not have done what I did on board the ship. Then I got a note from immigration saying to go stay at the Welcome House in downtown Vancouver. So I reported myself there. At Welcome House, I had two roommates. They were Iranians, good guys. And when they saw how upset I was, they tried to calm me down and support me emotionally. But on July 1st, the day that there were going to be fireworks, I decided to commit suicide. So I went out and I found a really good, strong silk rope. And I also found a bicycle brake cable. My two roommates did whatever they could to get me out of the house to go celebrate, but I made a lot of excuses to stay home. And as soon as my roommates left, I climbed up on a table, and I took the light out from the ceiling. I took out everything from around the housing of the light, and then I found the strong metal beam inside the housing. And I tied the brake cable of the bike to the metal beam inside the ceiling. Then I made the cable into a noose so I could hang myself. I tied one end of the brake cable to the beam in the ceiling. And I placed the noose around my neck. I tied my feet. And I tied both my hands together. And then I kicked the chair out from under my feet. And as I dropped, I felt a huge pain around my neck. And right at that moment, one of my roommates, who had forgotten his eyeglasses, came back in the room. And as soon as I dropped, hanging there on the rope, the door opened and my roommate came in. 
So, I don't know, I was hanging for maybe 30, 40 seconds, maybe a minute. I was struggling and shaking my hands and feet like that. As soon as my roommate Akbar came in, he grabbed me by the legs and lifted me up away from the floor. He started screaming and shouting. And Hamid, the other roommate who was on the sidewalk waiting by the main entrance, heard Akbar screaming and shouting. And he thought that Akbar and I were fighting with each other or something bad had happened, so he rushed in. And Hamid saw Akbar holding my legs and lifting me up from the floor. So he told Hamid, cut the rope, cut the rope. So he cut the rope, and then they unwound it from around my neck, and they started giving me CPR, and then they slapped my face to revive me, and then they brought me some water. I was very angry that I didn't manage to kill myself. Akbar knew of an organization in Vancouver called VAST, Vancouver Association for the Survivors of Torture. And they both urged me to go and visit VAST. And I told them, you know what, I'm not interested in going to VAST. Why would I do that? I'm exhausted. I am tired of breathing. Zahid eventually did start seeking treatment at VAST. He'd been struggling for the past 20 years, ever since the bunker in Khoramshar, to put the war behind him. Now, finally, that's exactly what was about to happen. I was leafing through a bunch of newspapers and magazines in the waiting room at Fast, and the door opens, and into the waiting room comes this guy. And I thought, maybe he was from Iran, or maybe he's Kurdish or Afghani. I speak decent Farsi or Persian, and I asked him, are you Iranian? And he said yes. And when I was talking to him, he asked me about my accent, because I'm not actually Iranian, and Farsi isn't my mother tongue. So he asked me, are you Kurdish? He was pretty insistent. Are you Afghani? Are you Kurdish? I told him, no, I'm Iraqi. He could speak a bit of Farsi. So I asked him, how do you learn Farsi if you're from Iraq? And he said that he'd been a prisoner of war in Iran, and he'd learned Farsi at the POW camp in Iran. Then we both burst out laughing, and I said, I'd also been a prisoner of war in Iraq, and you were a POW too in Iran? We started talking, and Zahed says to me, I remember there was this Iraqi guy. He says, I remember he was a prisoner of war, and in my mind, I picture taking him to the hospital, and his teeth were broken too. It was at that moment that I started to feel something was beginning to happen. And I asked him, did that happen in Khoramshah? And then we started to complete each other's sentences. He mentioned that he'd been captured in Khoramshar, in a bunker. And I asked him, which bunker, where? And then I said to him, did you keep a photograph of your family in your pocket? And he said, yes, how did you know that? And I said, I'm the guy. I'm the soldier who was with you, caring for you. At that moment, there was a kind of stillness inside me. I went back to that time in the bunker 
back to when it happened. I was just looking at him, not sure what was happening. Was I looking at my angel? I reminded him of everything, point by point. I said, do you remember when you were in the bunker and a young boy approached you and he tied your shoelaces? He said, no, I wasn't really conscious then. I don't remember. I said, do you remember the open-air hospital, you know, the military field hospital and the young boy talking to the doctor about you and trying to save you? Do you remember anything like that? He said, oh yeah, I remember that. And I also reminded him, do you remember how you wanted to kiss the back of the hand of this young boy who was helping you? Do you remember how I actually pulled my hand back and kissed your face? And how I cried and how you cried too? Do you remember that? That was the trigger. That was the moment when he recognized me. And we both rose to our feet and we hugged each other. And we kissed and we kissed each other. And he said, yes, you're the guy. There were other people in the waiting room watching this. Well, how did they respond as the two of you got up and had this conversation and then hugged one another? The receptionist thought we were fighting. She think we are fighting to each other. She think we are fighting. Why did why did she think you were fighting? Were you screaming at one another? Yes. This... In fact, she wanted to call the police because we were screaming at the top of our lungs. <laughs> there were just two of us in the waiting room, but we were making enough noise to bring the whole house down. The whole office was just vibrating with our screams of joy. Everybody was so moved. There was this thing stuck in my throat that needed to come out for years. You know, the last time I cried and released this thing in my throat was when I last saw Najah. When I hugged him and kissed him. This time, he was my angel. And my depression lifted. Najah, if you look at Zahed right now, in this room, what do you see? When we went our separate ways at the hospital, I had no hope of seeing him again. It filled me with hope that I might be able to find my family and my child again, that everything I'd lost, I can maybe find it all again. So my angel is still alive. Zahed, I want you to look at Najah and tell me what goes through your head when you see him now after this unbelievable story. Najah is like my family. He's like a kind of God. He really is my angel because he gave me life. After he got a new chance at life, he gave me a new chance at life. He is the dearest and most precious thing in the entire world to me. Enemies and Angels was produced by Greg Kelly, who was also the voice of Zahid Haftlan. Steve Wadhams was the voice of Najah Haboud. Zahid and Najah still live in the Vancouver area. You can see a photo of them on our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. The web producer for Ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad. 
I've got to tell you that seeing the look in your faces as you see one another after this odyssey that you've been through uh, makes my chair go about four inches off the ground. <laughs> I, it's really quite great. There's actually almost no way I can thank you enough for sharing this very painful but also very hopeful story with me and uh, with the listeners. Um, but I will try to do what best I can. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.